Final Word Cricket Podcast, Season 15, Episode 18. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon sat in the ladies' stand at the SCG, and what do you know? It's raining. It's day seven. It's day, so it's that's day okay. six. Day six, because the test six. finished in four. Oh, yeah. Um, but still, that's okay. It's mentally it's a, day seven. It's allowed to rain. It was very um, bright and sunny and lovely last night when we were... At we're across last the road. Night. It was sunny last yeah, night. Yeah, it was. Well, you know, in the afternoon, okay. in the evening, when we, when we were doing time. our yeah. um, live show with Michael Bevan. So we're just over the back of this stadium at the Comedy Store. Yeah, um, yeah it was. It was terrific. Um, full room. Everybody was very happy. Michael Bevan, excellent guest, very good storyteller. You, you never know if you keep an eye on your feed, you might you might see that um, coming up at some time soon. So we have another interview to bring you today. It's with the Chief Executive of Cricket Australia, Nick Hockley. We've probably spoken to Nick a dozen times about finding a time to do this. He's a busy boy. Uh, he really is a busy boy and trying to get our diaries to line up with us all being in the same place has proven challenging but we saw this opportunity before I jump on a plane back to London tomorrow and with you still in Sydney and he lives in Sydney that we mm -hmm. were able to thread the needle and, and here we are. So he's just spent probably about 75 minutes with us, something like that, near enough to that, certainly over an hour, going through his life and what he did before coming into cricket administration and talking about all sorts of issues that relate to his day job now. It was most worthwhile. I'm, I'm interested with... Yeah, he's, he's very upfront. He's considered, takes his time, thinks about his answers, um, but I think tried to answer all of the questions that we put to him. Um, there wasn't a lot of politician doorstop dodging <laughs> going on there. Yeah, I guess that's a, a skill in his position is to uh, talk around the question when he doesn't want to necessarily answer it but I, I agree I think he was pretty good so we hope you enjoy that before getting to the interview a bit of housekeeping first of all thank you to all of the patrons that showed up to our live show last night that was so nice we haven't we haven't had the chance to do a Sydney show before no. this was the first time that it was possible and uh, meeting a lot of our Sydney crew was just it's always a thrill for us that we've got people that support the show the way that they do and uh, the vocal support of uh, our show last night and you know having a beer with a lot of people afterwards that's the that's the stuff that um, increasingly really matters to us uh, making the show as often as we do patreon.com forward slash to find a word I should say but uh, that, that was um, yeah just wanted to thank everybody who, who came out and made that a special night one we'll always remember with a guy who was a was a formative uh, cricketer in, in our mm. formative years. Well, I particularly enjoyed the bit. So during uh, during the break, we played the extended version, that the half-hour highlights of the New Year's Day 1996 ODI while Michael Bevan was sitting in the green room listening to the crowd responding to his <laughs> game as though it were live. And We're like, uh, oh, that must be the Roger when, Harper when drop he, catch. Yep, <laughs> when he whacks Roger Harper down the ground and the cheer goes up, we just turned to him and said, I think you won. Uh, which... <laughs> So I, I think, I think he, he enjoyed the fact that everybody was enjoying it so much. One other bit here, I, I, I just want to stress that if you're on the fence about this Edinburgh Marathon, Half Marathon, 10K, remember there's three options. The 10K is on the Saturday morning, Half Marathon on the Sunday morning and the uh, Full Marathon on the slightly later on the Sunday morning. Uh, the time is now. Uh, apparently places are filling up quicker than we thought. Mm. Uh, we've got over 30 people running for the final word for the tabs on behalf of the tabs trying to raise £30,000. Uh, Jeff, I think we're registering you um, in hope more than expectation that you'll be there for the 10K. But <laughs> we've had a real uh, real surge of interest in the last few days. But please, if this is you, if you're hearing this, you're like, if you're on the fence, this is the time to commit. Uh, New Year's has been and gone, so has Christmas. Get mm -hmm. those running shoes out there. If you, even if you just want to limit yourself to the 10K, you've got so much time on your side before 
before. I think it's May the 25th or something like that. We'll be organising accommodation in a couple of weeks' time. All the social activities said before our, our listenerships what is the lifeblood of the show. Well, there'll be a lot of uh, fellow travellers from the final word up there. It's going to be a superb weekend. And let's send a cheerio to Seabus Super who support the show looking after people's superannuation in retirement. Over 900,000 members, 8.99% average return on their uh, default fund. Past performance not a reliable indicator of future performance. Yes, square uh, brackets, my square super, brackets. and square brackets that account indeed. And yep. uh, yeah, the um, the support of Seabus through the summer has been has been immense, allowing us to dart around the country making the podcast as often as we do. And that won't uh, that won't change a jot. So I go back to the UK tomorrow. We'll, we'll record one more program, of course, before I get on the plane. Mm-hmm. We'll do a daily, do a, a weekly show that hoovers up everything else that's happened around the cricketing Which world while we've been busy doing the the Sydney Test match and, and the live show and, and this interview today with Nick Hockley. But then we will uh, pick it up with live shows, or sorry, um, daily shows, I mean, at the Australia West Indies Test matches. Yep. I'll be back with you in New Zealand mm-hmm. a few weeks after that through the first two weeks of March there'll be uh, I can I don't know if we've said this yet but I'm happy to say it now there will be daily shows for the India England men's test series five test matches starting in the third week of January I'm pretty sure yep Cameron Ponsonby is heading out to India so he'll be the final word rep on the ground out there I'm quite uh, happy I'm, I'm quite chuffed for Cam that he's going to come on working for us doing various things and we're like you're very good at this daily hosting thing why don't you uh, why don't you go out there and helmet and we'll be your offsider mm-hmm. rather than the other way around so Cam will do a, a splendid job with that um, but there'll be yeah live shows every day coming from India in a hotly anticipated series there and so much more stuff through 2024 so can't stop won't stop cbussuper.com.au brilliant supporters in their 40th year heaps more about them throughout the course of January, February, March and patreon.com forward slash the final word if you want to get involved with us and get involved as part of our wider discord community and, and so on it's going to be a huge year on that front as well okay uh, with no further ado, uh, coming up after a, a quick little uh, interlude, musical interlude, it'll be uh, Nick Hockley, who we've just finished chatting to. Final word, Adam Cohen's Jeff Lemon here at the Sydney Cricket Ground a couple of days after Australia have defeated Pakistan and sat opposite me in the ladies' pavilion here is the Chief Executive Officer of Cricket Australia, Nick Hockley. Nick, it's great to catch up with you. I know we've been meaning to do this chat for a couple of years, but to do it now at the end of a series, a series that I think had a, a bit more love for it than we might have thought mm. a few weeks ago. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's um, no, good, good to chat. It's been, uh, been a fantastic week here here in Sydney and you know, I think 125,000 mm. uh, through the gates seeing all the families on the field you know, after the day's play uh, Davies send off um, it's been a been a pretty special week Just on that relationship between Australia and Pakistan the Ben Okadir trophy which was struck a couple of years ago when we were all in Pakistan for mm. that historic series it does feel like a deep relationship you've announced something with them at the end of the test match about junior players or younger players coming through in the two countries and there seems to be a genuine affection and a desire to see them improve as a test nation yeah i mean i think that tour in march uh, 22 was uh, really really important from a whole whole range of reasons and you know in talking to the pcb you know, that's why we actually wanted to name the trophy something you know the board of gavaskar the ashes mm. you know they've got a, a level of significance and yeah that was the start of a really i think really strong relationship let's not forget they're such an important uh, cricketing nation you know anywhere between 220 million 240 million population cricket is the sport and um, so it's been great to spend 
lots of time with our counterparts um, during during this period. And I have to say, I think the way that the um, the Pakistan team conducted themselves, the spirit in which the series was played, was just just fantastic. And a bit of rain sprinkling on the corrugated iron roofs here. You must always be a little bit nervous coming into <laughs> Sydney Test Week as to whether you're going to get enough play in. Yeah. Um, it's been magnificent yesterday, the last couple of days. I think for me, the the atmosphere on day three, uh, Jane McGrath Day this summer is as good an atmosphere as I can uh, I can remember. And yeah, as you're leaving the ground, chatting to people, they're just yeah, all smiles. Phenomenal day of, of test cricket. Yeah, lots of memorable moments. And um, so, yeah, it has been, it's interesting, I mean, you can't do anything about the weather, but you do. You do start to learn a little bit more about meteorology. Um, so I'm just trying to kind of work out whether it's, you know, as between El Nino and La Nina, yeah, what we're in for because we've got a couple of really big, big summers coming up. Felt like it was a, a series that was also good for business to be crewed as the, the Warner farewell clearly helped with that. A series where there was a, a lot of eyeballs and a lot of attention at a time that Test Cricket needs a lot of eyeballs and a lot of attention. We'll talk more about that later, but it felt like the last couple of weeks has been, has been timely. I just think it shows the passion for cricket in Australia. I was delighted that, uh, not huge numbers, but a lot of Pakistan fans, or quite, quite a number of Pakistan, the real you know, hardcore Pakistan fans came from all around the world. You know, I met people from North America. Um, some guys came out from, from, from my original hometown, Birmingham. And um, you know, overall, we were, you know, that, that attendance was, you know, was at the top, very top end of what we were hoping for. Birmingham, where you grew up, what were your early years like in a, a place where you also get a bit of rain at the cricket sometimes? Yeah, look, I mean, Edgbaston was a just a, a kind of when you think back about around growing up, grew up about a mile away from from the cricket ground. My my late father was uh, just absolutely um, well. He was a, well, first he was a very he was a, he was a good cricketer. He played for Middlesex Young Amateurs. He always said that his his medical career got in the way of his, his cricket career. And I think you know he was um, you know in many ways that's probably. Probably, probably quite quite right, but yeah, it was just it was it was it was it was all sports. It was um, you know riding around on uh, on you know on bicycles with with our mates. Then it was it was cricket in the back back garden, and um, just the other side of our back fence lived Dennis Amos, who was you know, at that time um, uh, captain of Warwickshire, and yeah, we became uh, Paul Amos, his, his his son, and I became good friends. And I'll tell you a story. My the, my dad's favourite, absolute favourite line. We'd all we'd all be in the back in the back garden um, playing cricket, and uh, Dad would get a, you know, a bleeper. You remember the old yeah. the old style bleepers? <laughs> um, and he'd be he'd say, "Sorry, I can't I can't call you back right now. Um, I'm watching Amos and Callich around back, batting in the back garden because uh, Rowan and Rowan and Paul were were great mates and used to co- come over uh, and play. And he used to just absolutely love that line. But in, in, in also, Dad worked extremely extremely hard, and the only time you could really get a um, you know, have a really kind of a good chat, completely uninterrupted. Was um, was you know sitting watching, watching the cricket at, at Edgbaston. So um, yeah, lot, lots, lo- loads of important conversations. How there? What what you're going to study at 
GCSE, A level. Um, so you know the, the cricket ground was a, a big part of it. We actually had Dennis Amos on the podcast last year when he turned 80 for a long conversation mm. about his life in cricket. I hope he's listening to this, Jeff. Yeah. Another Birmingham boy on the show today. Was there ever any temptation for you to get into the, I guess, the family business and mm. following your dad's footsteps and going to medicine? Probably growing up, always thought uh, my mum's an optometrist as as well. That you know that's what what we do but I didn't really have the subjects I, was, I wasn't, wasn't great at chemistry um, right. and you know you had to study chemistry at least chemistry physics I was much more kind of more on the, on the, on the maths math side of things and then I think the reality is we just we, we didn't see too much of him um, and when, when he got home he was complete, completely exhausted so probably made the decision not to when I chose what I was going to study at at A level, which was math, very much math economics, and then that's kind of led me to a, a career on, on the commercial side, commercial side of sport. So you did well enough to get yourself into Oxford. What was your path of study from there? Yeah, um, I mean that was a that was a yeah a great privilege, and probably probably why I'm in in Australia um, is the fact that I live with with three Aussies at uni. We we all played. Uh, Play, played rugby together. It's, it's quite a quite a, a sad story. We were playing a game of rugby against Saracens, and one of the guys I was living with, Ian Tucker, uh, got hit on the head in the first half. And um, now it wouldn't happen now nowadays, but um, uh, with concussion rules, should have been really pulled off, and then and then got hit on the head on, uh, in the second half, and, and and died died on the field. So I became super close, um, super close with the other two, and. You know, that's why I kind of wind forward, spent a couple of years in a couple of years in Australia where I, I met my wife and, and the rest is, uh, as they say, history. But you know, leave, leaving uni, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to what I wanted to do. I was playing a lot of rugby and did you I, get a blue at rugby when you were at Oxford? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, yeah, played um, in in front of seventy six thousand at Twickenham, which was a you know, abs- absolute absolute highlight. Am I right in uh, saying you represented your country at the Maccabee Games as well? Yes, yeah, in uh, in rugby, and then um, played for England at student level um, in in rugby as well. So you know, cricket was you know, cricket was my first my first love, and then I think it was around about thirteen years years of age. Um, and then into the, you know, really kind of getting to that 14, 15, 16, when they were starting to kind of pick people for the, for the school first team. We, we, had a, we had an incredible cricket team at school, um, and there were two younger guys who I played with at my club, West Bromwich Dartmouth, um, in Anurag Singh and Mark War. And that's um, Mark War uh, without a the U. Other one. Yeah, without a U. Um, so, you know, I was kind of beaten out of the school first cricket team by, um, by two guys in the year below, and the year below that, who actually then went on to have um, you know, reasonably significant um, county career. So I took the rugby route, you know, captain the school, but, but continued to play cricket. I captained the twos at school, um, carried on playing club cricket. Um, but uh, rugby was the game where I thought you know, it was just coming to the point where it was turning professional. Um, and you know, I think probably it's fair to say you kind of maxed out. Maxed out but uh, yeah, and then you know, got a very, very fortunate um, to, to be able to combine uh, passion with profession um, when, when moved into, into sports administration. I mentioned the Maccabee Games. Have you got a religious sort of background or bent these days or anything that, that, that links you to that or is that more sort of uh, more cultural? Yeah, look, I've got, I come from a, a yeah, Jewish family. I'm Jewish and um, it's, um, yeah, I think I'd fair to say I'm kind of traditional rather than um, 
kind of kind of religious but it's a really important uh, really important part of our family and um but, you know that said growing up in birmingham you know there were i think there were kind of six jewish kids in a school my school of a thousand and two of them were my my brothers so um you know i've always appreciated and i think it's really important for now having you know having kids that you know they you've got a really kind of broad cross-section of, of friends i think sport is absolutely phenomenal for that i mean I, that's the reason i love working cricket is you you know you get to meet people from all around the world all different backgrounds all different cultures and um you know, but I, you know, for me, the main thing it's instilled in me is a really the importance of family. So you must identify with this current group of Australian players having lost Philip Hughes, whose plaque is just over there, you know, having lost a teammate and a friend yourself. How did you, like, how did that affect your relationship with the game? Was there a point where you thought, I, I don't want to get back on a rugby field having seen that happen? Or Yeah, it's interesting. It was, it was in the October ahead of, ahead of the Varsity match and... Um, yeah, for, for some of the guys, you know, we we you know we, we spoke to certain people, um, got a bit got a bit of help, but you know, really, I think we were all, all quite young, and we just wanted to go out and do our very best for um, our very best for for Tux, and if anything, it just pulled us all kind of stronger, strong, more strongly together. Um, but um, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, it was a, a a pretty 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 emotional, pretty pretty formative time, and you know the that, I think that particular group, that particular year, caught up with um, a few of them for for lunch just before Christmas. Yeah, and these are the kind of the, the bonds and friendships that that sport create. So you come over to Australia, you referenced it before, and met who had gone to become your wife. What were your impressions coming out here? I'm I'm assuming you were sort of what mid twenties, out of uni. You've been working in the city for PwC in in London at a pretty interesting time I suppose a lot of change between that, that sort of late 90s early 2000s in yeah. London but was it sort of around that time that you came over here and thought I want to make a go of it in Australia or talk us through that process yeah so the fir- my first ever trip to, to Australia was coming out on a rugby tour we played Sydney Boys High in oh, Centennial right. Park uh, and absolutely fell fell in love with the place and then I came out for two years with my firm and like the main thing was I remember um, kind of walking in the first day and the the partners just gave me about five deals to work on um, just, and loaded me up with work so my first experience my first six months in Australia was working harder than I've ever done before but what I loved about it is um, you know if you it's so meritocratic here if you're good enough you're old enough and just got in, incredible opportunities to work on on some 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 great projects uh, you know worked on things like the the JV between um, Vodafone and Optus for 3G infrastructure. Did a, a, you know, a lot of work with, um, with, with Toyota. And so I went back from Australia where you know, it's, you know, really I think you can, pretty much within three phone calls, you can, you can speak to anyone, anyone in the, in the country. Uh, went back to London and went back into my firm and it was almost like I'd never left. And you know, that coincided with a time where London had just won, won the Olympic Games. I opened the newspaper, saw all the jobs advertised, threw my hat in, in, in the ring. And um, I remember going into the partner in London at the time to say, yeah, I've got this job on the, working on the Olympics. What, what do you think? Um, well, I'm going I'm, I'm to take it. And he, he gave me this whole big sales pitch why I shouldn't leave, partner track, global opportunities. And he, I kind of I was, I was sat there and he kind of looked me in the eye and he goes, 
you're gonna you're gonna do it aren't you and i went yeah I'm, I'm leaving i'm going to work on the olympics and he he said if i was in your shoes i'd do exactly the same <laughs> and um so that you know feel extremely extremely fortunate for that that break i'll talk to you i'll tell you about when i opened a paper second round time to see some some jobs which was on the for the cricket world cup which is you know again my kind of really break in, into into australian cricket but to be able to combine kind of your profession and, and your passion has been you know something i feel very 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 fortunate about so was that the emotional pull of sport that made you think like the work you're doing was interesting but then it, you can do something that's interesting and that that has this emotional chord to it as well that's that's something different to just doing a job yeah totally i mean what I did in the in the school in the school and uni holidays back in Birmingham, I'd always go and teach on schools um, kids sports camps in the summer holidays, uh, just because you can you know you see see kids and I see it you know you see it now with with all the all the cricket programs that we run, you know you just you see how they develop, see it in my own kids, so it's. Um, yeah, I mean, what I always say to you know, people come to me um, and say, like, how do I get into sport? How do I get into sports administration? I want to work in cricket. You know, I say, well, you know, first thing is go and get professionally qualified. You know, become a lawyer, you know, accountant, work for a strategy firm, because then you've got the business skills to be really, really dangerous. So um, I won't say mine was as kind of well planned out as as that, but I, you know, I do feel that my corporate finance skills you know i use them every single day in my current role but what it what it really is 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 about cricket is that you actually can do so much good in in the community yeah i know we talk talk a bit about it a lot but it it genuinely brings people together it is a really extremely powerful vehicle to foster greater cultural understanding um you know i think we've seen that in action this week I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Major events can leave a significant legacy in London 2012. So much of the story around that Olympic Games was about the legacy it would leave London. As a fellow veteran of Locog, albeit in a very different part of the business Mm. to what you were, I know that's how it felt um, when we were working on that Olympic Games. I think I read somewhere that you flew back uh, as the grand final was being played in 2012 to Australia. Mm. I must have been on the flight a day before you. I got yeah. back just in time to watch Hawthorne lose to Sydney in that grand final. But nevertheless, like that idea of being part of something big and long-lasting and major events, that, that can be a bit addictive. I've known people who have gone from major event to major event, and your CV does have a bit of that flow to it too. Having finished with the Olympic Games, you go into a Cricket World Cup and a couple of years in the commercial side of CA and then to another World Cup being the, the T20 format of the game, which is your springboard into ultimately becoming the chief executive. But yeah, if you can comment on that, the idea of being part of a set-piece event which has a natural end point, but how much you can do in that time. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I'm a massive subscriber. I don't think you can do anything by yourself. You need to, you need to work with people. And yeah, putting on, putting on an Olympic Games, they, I think it's often referred to as the most complex logistical exercise in peacetime. And it's, for me, it's just like playing sport. I, mean, I love team sports over um, individual sports. And you know, putting on a project that I was called, it's the ultimate, ultimate team sport. I think I was in employee number 80. And then the organizing committee grew, as you know, to kind of well over 5,000, 75,000 if you add in the volunteers, 150,000 if you add in all the suppliers. So, you know, you're kind of part of this, this team. Um, yeah, and I think even in, you know, and I've absolutely loved I've loved the major events because what it's um, yeah it's high stakes stuff God, I just had a bit of a um, 
bit of uh, kind of deja vu. There's rain here, and with the semi-final of the women's, I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, at yeah. S- oh yeah, at the SCG. But <laughs> but no, so my point being that you're on, you're you're extremely extremely visible, and there's a very very tangible end goal and uh, you all have to work together to get it done so that massively massively rewarding huge buzz um when it when it uh, you know comes to fruition you know you know the, the closing ceremonies of the olympics you can com- you know, complete in the paralympic games completely exhausted but you know you, you still um you know, it's a pretty small world the the sports um sports industry and you know people have gone on to work on fifa world cups on grand prix on rugby world cups and you still you know you see people that you work with and it's um you kind of just you kind of it's a bit of a wink you just you just know and you know it's 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 amazing where um the little team that i worked on what people have gone on to gone on to do um you've got vinai who's kind of running arsenal football club uh, Simon Massey Taylor running Premiership Premiership Rugby uh, just worked with an incredible incredible um, team and learned a fortune um, you know my previous CEO always said uh, you know we talked about whether you do an MBA or whether you go and work on a, reckon we did 15 years work experience in five, in five years mm-hmm. and just uh, just a massive privilege but I think the really what I've taken taken from that and into this role is that and even you know if you think about the our, our cricket teams and their preparation for major world events if you break things down into projects and you're really kind of clear who's working on them when you need to get them done by what does success look like it's a it's completely transferable to absolutely everything so I, you know again i would say my two bits of advice to be one again in the sports industry would be get professionally trained and go and work on a major event the 2020 that t20 world cup uh, that's i i think i would say that might be the most ambitious cricket event put on that women's t20 world cup to say you know 15 16 the wbbl starts and by 2019 20 you're saying we're going to sell out the mcg for the final and that ambition was you know a couple of years it was it was it was minted a couple of years ahead of time which was hugely ambitious you know adam and i were covering a lot of women's cricket in that period you got really small crowds at Australian women's games, modest crowds at the Big Bash games. And to say that far ahead of time, no, we're going to put it at the MCG and we're going to fill it. And 86,000 came in and and probably the other 5,000 would have if COVID hadn't been um, bubbling up that week and and some people stayed away. Those seats were all allocated. They're just people who didn't show up on the day. Um, Tell us about that coming up to that moment and and realising that it worked. Yeah, and look, I think the first thing I'd say is that uh, the the vision, the leadership of a number of people in Australia in the lead up kind of made that possibility happen. I know you know the likes of Belinda Clark, Christina Matthews, James Sutherland. I remember having breakfast uh, with James Sutherland uh, in about twenty sixteen and we started we started talking about it. Um, and this was off the back of the World Cup in India, you know, the one where Australia got to the final yes. of the women's. Yep. And Matthews. Yeah, and Carlos Brathwaite hit. Yeah, West yep. Indies won both. Yes. Yep. Uh, in the same day. And we were, I, I, I went along and we were, yeah, we were there on a bit of a learning uh, experience to, to kind of thinking about what we're going to do in, in four years' time. And we were watching Australia play in, in, in the final and there was maybe about 2,000 people at Eden Gardens, which looked like nothing. Um, and then in the evening of, you know, um, 
Brathwaite, remember, remember the name? Um, so, you know, that clearly didn't work. And I think it was James that said, you know, we've got to give the women's game its own oxygen, its own clear space. So that was the first thing to separate the, the tournaments. And then it was, it kind of came down to a principles thing. If, um, if we're genuine about equality, genuine, uh, then if the, the men's event, we're going to play in the biggest stadiums in the country, then the women's um, uh, also. And yeah, it's just really, it's you know, something I certainly subscribe to is that you know, change uh, doesn't happen in a linear fashion. Um, you know, I'm a, uh, I really like the book um, The Tipping Point by Mal Malcolm Gladwell. It's, you know, you know, you almost know kind of shock that shocked the system, and you know we had a uh, we had the confidence of the working on the 2015 World Cup. We had a great stability. We had a lot of the same people involved. My chair, John Harner, was chief executive, so we had a bit of a idea how to put on a World Cup in in Australia, and we thought we are not going to we are going to we are going to not leave any stone unturned. We're going to make this as big as we possibly could. So. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, there's a bit of it. Build it, and they will come as well. So, uh, so you know, and that those principles, you know, I think we take forward to this day. So, you know, we've just had our first stadium series of the WBBL, which, you know, we've got we've got a long way to go. But it was by far and away, you know, I think we broke on three consecutive nights the highest attendance for a regular season standalone WBA BBL game. So, um, you know, I think I think it's it's just really. Really exciting for everybody, to, and you want to work. You want to work on transformative stuff. So, having banked that success, I suppose COVID hits, as Jeff points out, pretty much straight away. Everyone's got their own COVID story. Yours is more unusual than most, given where you started it and and where you ended up a few months later. But I'm just interested in what you thought you would be doing next. So let's assume that there's no COVID and no dramatic transition at Cricket Australia and you go on to oversee the Men's T20 World Cup later in 2020, as I think from memory yep. it was scheduled. Mm. Um, what, what do you think would have been your next job if not for that? Where do you think, where were you expecting to go after this yeah. major event? Well, I think that was my first CEO role and uh, the T20 World Cup. And... Uh, I knew I wanted to do a, at that time. I knew I wanted to do another CEO role, right? Because I really enjoyed that, you know, setting the strategy, bringing a team together. Um, so I would have, I, you know, I think I would have. If you ask my wife, if you ask Lauren, um, she would say you're going to take a little bit of a break and you're yes. going to spend some time with us. Uh, but I, you know, I, I would have been. I probably would have had a qu big question: as do I, do I stay in sport? or Do I not stay in sport? Um, you couldn't have possibly thought it was going to be Cricket Australia's job. Strictly speaking, that right, like you might have ended up the chief executive of a state association, or of a, or somewhere else around the world, or maybe out of cricket altogether. Yeah, look, I mean, my, my the overriding thing that I've uh, principle I've always done, and, and Dad was very big on this, is was, you know, you're only good as your last five minutes, and get your head down and do good work, and the opportunities will follow. So I've, you know, I'm fortunate. I've only really worked for three organisations in my entire career. I worked for PwC, I worked for the, for the Olympics, and I've worked for cricket in, in Australia. Um, uh, so, um, but you're right. It was a you know, real shock um, when Earl kind of called me up, and um, you know, goodness, it. In so, I mean, that's how long ago? Three and a half years ago. In some some sense, it feels like a lifetime ago, given everything that's uh, gone on through COVID and. Um, but just feel massively, yeah, massively, massively privileged. Um, we, we're all representing something, uh, yeah, very, very important to uh, to a lot of people. And I say that that's Australian cricket, but it's also the sport of cricket 
Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's interesting. Um, it's a, an interesting hypothetical question, but I feel very, very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Stepping into that CEO job uh, for Cricket Australia interim at first, but you've got, I mean, there were a couple of years of political manoeuvrings against James Sutherland, trying to move him on. Kevin Roberts gets taken out the back and, you know, sent to live on a farm in the country where he has a lot of room to run around. And then you're stepping into that. Did you, were you nervous? I mean, it seemed like a, it's a dangerous gig to be in, in a way. It's not a very secure job to uh, be in. At that stage, there was only really one job to be done. Mm. And it was as simple as, how do we get India in the country? Mm. Yep. It was that, um, and again, you go back to major events, you go back to projects. That was the project. It's and, problem uh, solving. You know, there were, I'm sure my friends and colleagues at the BCCI won't mind me saying that there were some pretty kind of hairy moments in that, in that, whole, in that whole journey. But, um, you know, we, we pulled together um, an amazing group of people through that period. Uh, a completely unsung hero is a guy called Brian Norse who helped us. He was deputy, um, a major event background, um, deputy CEO of the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. You know, all of the, the logistics uh, we had, um, uh, you know, a brilliant financial modeler come in and uh, work through all the, all the per- permutations. Our government relations team were just were just a- were just outstanding, and we we relied very heavily on on, on governments. Um, so, uh, and then you know, I suppose then the, the the question came: Do I actually apply for the role uh, full time? Um, and that was a, a big global search. It was you know quite a, an, an extensive process, but I, I found that to be. A really interesting and useful process. So it was the first time when I could actually stop and think and actually had to put forward uh, my vision, my plan. So you know whether I would have got that or not got that. That was a. I thought that was a. That was a. Um, I really actually enjoy enjoyed that process, and um, you know very very proud of of the team that you know we're we're kind of off the new strategy. We're about eight, eighteen months in and. Um, uh, lots, loads to do, but uh, but some good stuff achieved already. So when you become interim CEO, you're kind of thrown right into the middle of negotiating with the most powerful people in the global game. Like this is an instantaneous thing. There's no time for you to get your feet under the desk. And it was briefed out pretty hard that you thrived in that situation. That I mean, I suppose it's like a politician who's um, who excels when the doors are shut, working inside a cabinet subcommittee or something like that. They prefer that than doing press conferences and being behind a microphone. I get the impression that's how you're hardwired as well. That you like kind of problem solving and working and negotiating. Is is that a fair depiction? And in a way, those circumstances actually suited your skill set. Yeah, I, I mean, I've probably got a decent background on the you know the, the combination of the logistics of the finances and actually what goes on to uh, you know putting on kind of uh, big sporting events moving teams around all of those things so yeah I was uh, I was a bit like pig in mud in terms of the problem solving I love love the problem solving love the love love working with really you know smart teams on a on difficult difficult stuff so um, um, you know people ask me god you know what was it like dealing with the BCCI uh, the the reality is, it's that whole period was um, just such a heightened level of intensity. Yeah, you know, it used to be the, the previously you'd write a letter, send it off. You might hear back kind of six weeks later. We were on Zoom calls four or five times a day. Yeah, every 
I remember sitting down at the beginning of the day and thinking, you know, there's sometimes I'd be up to three, you know, certainly upwards of 100 phone calls had to be made to different people. Uh, the adrenaline was um, just incredible adrenaline. And then, of course, we were all had this kind of shared lived experience. They were stuck at home, couldn't go anywhere, had kids running around, you know, dogs coming, coming into your office. So it was kind of, it was a, um, and then even between the sports in Australia, I mean, you know, we were actually really fortunate is that COVID hit right at the end of our season. Um, so we had a whole off season to try and kind of deal with it. But, you know, I remember speaking to the, you know, the guys at, at the footy codes and everyone really kind of pulled together and worked together. So I, I, yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely, looking back, loved it. A couple of moments where a bit of post-traumatic stress, but, um, but you yeah, know, very, uh, very, very rewarding to have not dropped a single game. Um, you know, the one, including Big Bash, uh, the one game that we uh, we didn't play, which was for different reasons against, against Afghanistan. And, um, yeah, so I think what, you know, in that sense, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think what I was so proud of this week and over to this test series is, you know, all the staff, and now I include the broad ecosystem, you know, you've got our broadcasters, our sponsors, our venue partners, governments, is that... Um, because we had to do so much in such a kind of short, intense period, you know, now we're so well drilled, so well planned. Um, and uh, what I said to my staff um, before the start of this home domestic summer is, um, you know, none of us are going to be doing this forever. Uh, it's an absolute privilege. Um, you know, be confident in the planning work you've done and absolutely just really, really enjoy it. And I think the smile, I don't know whether you noticed it, but the smile on the face of all the, you know, the event staff, the, the security staff here at the SCG, I think that rubs off on, on our patrons, the patrons, our, our cricket fans. So well, on the one hand, it was massively rewarding. It's really, really nice to be through that. Mm. Where things get really difficult is that 2021 cancelling that trip to South Africa, the tests there and no matter how good you are behind the scenes, you're going to end up in the spotlight at least some of the time in a, in a job like this. And that was the point where you were ducking uh, pot shots from all over the place. What's that like when suddenly you're copying it in, in a very public way um, because of your decision-making? Yeah. That, that phone call to Paletzi from South Africa was, I think, one of the hardest phone calls I had to make in the job. And... What people don't forget, what people kind of, um, are kind of quick to forget, is the fact that the vaccination, the vaccines hadn't been rolled out at that stage. So um, it was, you know, people were kind of. It was a pretty, it was a pretty easy decision to, that we couldn't tour, but it was, um, you know, it was very, very difficult from a relationship perspective, and um, to try and communicate that to the kind of the broader kind of cricket community hopefully I think people now understand the fact that we you know we went there went to West Indies Bangladesh uh, we were the first international team to leave Australian shores during the pandemic and then of course we went to Pakistan for the first time in 24 years you know we will do everything possible to keep the game going and we need to support um, uh, all our friends and partners in other cricketing countries so I feel like we've kind of come back come, come back Come, come back from that but um, yeah that was um, I'm trying to get, think of an analogy uh, you know I'm trying to put the shoe on the other foot if, if that had been the BCCI ultimately telling us that we, they couldn't come 
you know, and because we had that understanding, it was a desperately, desperately difficult, difficult phone call. I know this is, that's in the COVID context, but you've stepped into the job. We we're going to talk about this later, but we're here now. Um, where Australia has got a bad reputation, has enjoyed a bad reputation on, um, you know, the fact that Zimbabwe has not been here for 20 years for a test series. Bangladesh is 20 years this year as well. When we spoke to your peer, uh, Richard Gould at the ECB earlier this year, he acknowledged and accepted that's a problem and a shortcoming in their um, governance and has seen fit to... Uh, give Zimbabwe a test in 2025 like he's determined to set straight that reputation England have got as well after the South African experience is that something that's uh, that's planted in your mind as well knowing that as a full member as a senior full member you've got a responsibility with 11 other full members not just three or four to ensure that they are able to be part of the Australian story and you part of their story too um, ab- absolutely and um you know, that's why we've gone to such great lengths to make sure we do fulfil our commitments. Um, and, yeah, I think we've got uh, Bangladesh coming out for a series in the next couple of years. And, uh, yeah, we need to... We need to you know, I think the World Test Championship has really, really helped because it, it defines uh, a rotation of people that you need to play in any given four-year cycle. So... We talked about the, the relationship with with Pakistan. I think that's that, that that's a, you know another another case in point. Clearly, you know, we've got you know, really significant mark five test marquee series for the Ashes, and now the Border Gavaskar series is, is five tests. So, but it's uh, it's you know I think we've got to try and achieve two. We've got to try and achieve two things. And I look, I think there's been lots of discussion around strength of test cricket. Uh, T20 leagues. I am a firm believer that with good collaboration, um, a collective will, that each of these can coexist. It's not an. It's not an either. It's not an either or. Yeah, I'd love to see, and I'm work, uh, working now with T20 being the growth format and expanded T20 World Cup, and then a pinnacle opportunity for an Olympic medal, and then obviously the World Test Championship. You know, really. Um, be really really super clear on the future of the the one one day game in in that context and you know i think a level of jeopardy to be able to make one day uh world cups will give more meaning and context to bilateral series um and then it's you know i think we've got to keep keep doubling down on the world test uh, championship um and we want as many strong test playing countries in 10 20 30 years time as possible and yeah i'm acutely aware that this current group of uh uh, that sit around you know, the ICC table, us included, and we've got to take a lead role. We've got a big responsibility. Australia's played one test in Zimbabwe ever in '99, and they were last here in 2003. Is there any realistic path to playing test cricket against them and potentially Ireland as well and maybe using that to bring in Canberra and Hobart who will always miss out when there are five tests in a home summer? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's something that we'll, we will con- continue to look at and, and see, see if, we, if we can. I think the, you know, our away summers in the UK, uh, this year it was com- really, really crunched. You know, in many ways, the, the, it, it made for a fantastic series, but with the World Test Championship final and then um, you know, the... Uh, the 100 in, in August, we just simply did not have time. I'd love to see a, a world where, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, ideally you play a, a warm-up, uh, or sorry, a tour match, um, and I'd love to see that against um, Ireland and against, Scot- against Scotland. And then, you know, as 
as cricketing countries get stronger throughout around the world, then the World Test Championship kind of builds out. And um, you know, there's more participants, and they are, they're they're fuller participants in in the World Test Championship. But yeah, you know, a lot a lot's been talked about it. You know, and this week, if you step right back, there's more uh, cricket being played. There's more opportunities for players. There's more money coming into the game, uh, and the game is yeah. I think um, at our ICC annual conference, um, there was some kind of research put forward that uh, cricket is the the fastest growing team sport in in the world. So, you know, the, the tests will always be the pinnacle format, and so I think it's it's really how is there a a, a, you know, a, a pathway a pathway for other countries to kind of to, to build up build up to that level. It's going back to when you were grooving yourself in this role, having become the full time chief executive in the middle of 2021 next summer arrives and it's quite a scandalous start to the summer with Tim Payne being forced to leave the test captaincy unexpectedly at extremely short notice before a home Ashes series and as Jeff touched on before you're in the gun, you're the public figure, you're the chief executive, you've never been in a role before where you've got everyone posing an opinion on your job um, the people involved, the Clyde Matheson angle for this, like they, they were, it was on right, you were in the crosshairs of a lot of people having only just taken on the role have you had a chance to kind of a couple of years on reflect on that Farago, anything you might have done differently and the experience of being really under the pump quite early on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, my, the concern is really for the people, is for people. I mean, there, were, there have been times through that whole period where I've felt desperately sad. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate now that we, we're now working, I get to work with, with Payne, you know, in his role. Uh, he's supporting us with, 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 a, with a pathway program. So, you know, there's clearly, you know, we've, we've all been on a journey, but the, really, you know, in those environments, I'm le less thinking about the kind of the public stuff and thinking actually about what's the right thing to do and what the right thing to do by, by, the, people in, by the people involved. I feel that's the I feel that I feel that's the, that's the that's the most important important thing. Even if it meant you lost some paint yourself, that your focus was more inward rather than external through that. I think as long as you're trying to do the right thing and trying to do the best with the the cars that were dealt, that's that's all you can do. I'm so fortunate and privileged. I've got incredible people. Uh, people around me. I've got a, a wonderful executive team. I've got you know, a, you know, phenomenal. I've got a fantastic board. I've got, you know, I've got my own mentors that I can talk to. There's, yeah, probably the the thing that um, my CEO on the on the Olympics taught me, Paul Dyson. He often used to say, you know, his job is to surround himself with the, with the best people in the role than any particular thing, and would always encourage you to go and speak to someone else. So. Yeah, when there's when there's huge time pressure, you've got to make judgment calls in split seconds, and you know ultimately it's it's on it's it's on you. But you know, I think the main thing is you just you just you try to do try to do the right thing. It, it's also, I mean, it's an interesting one as well is when you make a decision, um, because sometimes you need to make a quick decision. Other other times, uh, it's actually about getting as much data and information as you possibly can to make the best decision. Sometimes the you know the public narrative they want a very quick decision every single time, um, but often the better decision is to get more data, more information, and then make the right decision. So, yeah, I've, I've kind of you learn to kind of live with that balance, and it can get a little bit noisy in the interim, but ultimately it's about doing the right thing, caring for people and, and trying to make the best decision you possibly can with the best information you have available.
Was that more difficult with the Justin Langer situation, him transitioning out of the coaching job? Because then it's not just public criticism, but you've got all of these golden generation Australian cricketers who are on board with him. Your criticism's coming from the biggest names in the sport. Does that make it more difficult? Was that the, the most intense period? Yeah. Look, I think that's part of the is the getting good information is yeah there's a there's a there's a lot of really important experience voices uh in in the game and you need to you need to take take those those on board but you know that that is an instance where we were really trying to get as much information as we possibly can to make the uh the you know the best the best possible decisions and then you've also got logistical challenges that you know people are in the middle of test series so sometimes you find yourself it's it's very difficult to make big decisions when you're in the middle of 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 test series you know i think probably my biggest learning now is with the schedule as it is with the amount of cricket uh uh, as it is and you know i think this is something that the current high performance setup and coaching staff is actually being as well planned as you possibly uh, can be or you know as kind of ronnie says being you know being more planned being more planned than than the opposition so you know i think as we're now coming out of a period of covid where i think you know things like we talk a lot about um we talk a lot more about succession that's on the administrative side on the playing side and um, because you don't want to be kind of caught in in, in situations like that where you're being rushed to t- where you're being rushed to take a, a very difficult decision so yeah it that would be probably the only thing I'd say. There are there are elements because of the environment of COVID and all those things. I think the longer lead time you can possibly create to make really, really important decisions, the better. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. So the Langer decision happens pretty much at the same time that Cummins as the human being, not so much the captain or the cricketer, starts talking a lot about climate change. And, you know, you're now, and that the whole other thing, and the two issues are conflated, and it's pretty ugly for him for a number of months now. I know you do some qualitative research in relation to Pat at the time. I understand, like, lots of work goes on behind the scenes because I suppose the reputation of the, the men's test captain is really important. But this extra layer of scrutiny, which is relating to the players' uh, personal opinions. We've seen a little bit of with Usman Khawaja in the last few weeks. And typically the organisation lines up with the cricketer, right? I mean, it's been your position as far as I'm aware. You've always basically taken the side of your players and given them licence to say whatever they see fit and back them in to do so. Makes it a, a pretty different job than what even James Sutherland had as your predecessor to before where this never would have really been part of his job answering questions about you know the Gaza Strip whereas now it's part of your lived experience on, on account of the fact that a player like Usman Khawaja a senior player has, has seen fit to uh, to protest in his own way yeah I mean I found the, the I mean that is one where really to give it too much second thought I mean the main thing with uh, with Pat and I mean firstly I think he's done done and is doing the most phenomenal job and you know is, is really growing growing into the role uh, superbly well I think I think the way that he's led in this series and then you know by particularly by kind of grabbing the ball and just leading by example at, at critical moments has been has just been f- phenomenal but um, the main thing was that we just needed wanted to clarify that it wasn't kind of uh, 
anything to do with kind of Pat's views that our previous shirt sponsor decided to, to, to pull out. As for being, you know, an advocate for, for climate change, you know, I think that's, that's something that's really, really important to many, many people and the next generation. So I, you know, I think all, all, cre all strength and all, all credit for Pat for, for, for being you know, interested in broader, broader social issues. So, you know, I think the, where, where it becomes a, um, you know, a, a bit of a fine line is when you're, you're trying to kind of mix actually what goes on the field with with that as we've as we've had to kind of deal with and and think about and talk about through the last the last few weeks but i think increasing that is that's just that's 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 super clear so i i i love the fact that we've got a um you know, a group of um young people uh fantastic role models increasingly you know you kind of you know, with young families that you know care deep, care about more than uh, just kind of what you know uh, just kind of really cricket and actually are interested in a whole range of other issues really well-rounded people and uh you know i think that you know it's the mo the moments you get a, a kind of rare opportunity to to sit down and have a, a kind of a decent chat with both our women's players and our men's players you know typically it's um you know it's it's 50 50 it's a bit of cricket it's cricket and then it's you know how are you going more broadly and you know it could be any any whole range of issues from you know business um you know what they're interested in what what, what they're doing outside the game so I, i'm very proud of the fact we've got really really well-rounded individuals representing our national teams and all credit to them you mentioned before the afghanistan test that didn't go ahead jeff allardyce the icc boss he's paraphrased take on it was the ICC doesn't have a right to interfere and cut across the laws of a member country, which is obviously not true if the laws of a country are human rights breaches in their, in their own right. And it's pre-ICC, but there's a clear precedent with international cricket pushing South Africa out for 25 years during the apartheid years. What's your perspective on the Afghanistan situation and, uh, I mean, how, how international cricket is allowing... A member board to keep playing when half the country is banned from playing cricket. Yeah, look, it's it's super complicated, and um, you know this is where there are elements where you think you know you're a cricket administrator first, and then um, you know there are much more serious and difficult issues going going on in the world. I think yeah, as it relates to our bilateral arrangements with the ACB, first thing I think we've maintained a really constructive dialogue. Uh, with the Afghanistan Cricket Board, and uh, you, who are they're you know, wonderful, wonderful people who uh, just you know, same as us, just super passionate about the health of the game, growing the game. The context for when um, that decision was made was uh, there was a really massive pullback on freedoms and liberties for women and girls in, in Afghanistan under the the new regime. I think as in, in between them being here for and playing in the T20 World Cup last November, they were then told that girls can't go to school, can't use parks and gyms. Um, so it was, um, you know, again, we, and we consulted really broadly, including with the Australian government, and it was, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty easy decision. That wasn't wasn't the right thing. Yeah, you know, I think what we, the really important thing is that we maintain a dialogue and we kind of you know, keep championing what we believe, which is. Yeah, as we've seen throughout the, yeah, we're seeing you know, here that cricket is a game for everyone, and uh, you know, I, I read that a delegation of 17 women was sent as part of a broader delegation of 80 odd 
uh, representing Afghanistan to the Asian Games. So it gives you some cause for, for hope. But the main thing is that there's there's positive trajectory. I mean, I, we're, there's obviously different cultural contexts, but yeah, you know, I, I think we've been we've been really proud to you know support some of the um, some of the Afghan cricketers that have. Um, have been granted evacuation visas to to Australia as well, but huge, hu- hugely complex. We'd love to, we'd love to be playing cricket against Afghanistan. I mean, they lit up the they lit up the uh, the recent 50 over World Cup. We were very, <laughs> but for Maxi's heroics, we were you know we would have not 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 made it through. So um, so yeah, just we'll keep championing, keep hoping, and and, and yeah. I think the, the question, hopefully there is progress and then the question will be when can we resume playing? There was a, a view that it was pretty convenient when Australia pulled out of the Afghanistan series in March last year, let me get my timing right, was clashing with the IPL. Australia already had automatic qualification for the 50 over World Cup. It didn't really mean anything in in context. In context, it meant an awful lot. When it did mean something at the World Cup, Australia did play against Afghanistan. Was there any ever consideration given at your end as to whether you would play them at that 50 over World Cup and by that what I'm really asking is did you discuss whether you should boycott that game for the same principled reasons that you outlined in March? We we did discuss it um, but we you know felt um, very clearly that you know a precondition of participating in World Cup is you play your scheduled fi- fixtures and you know that's really you know, we, we've made it very, very clear what we stand for and what we believe in. We've also kind of championed the fact that it's incumbent on the ACB to do everything they possibly can. That's the Afghanistan Cricket Board. For, uh, um, to do everything they possibly can um, to uh, resume uh, their, their female programmes. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that was a, that was a debate that we had um, well before um, we've been having for three years and even in the context uh, we had that debate in the context of the hosting the T20 World Cup in, in November so um, you know, that that was we all we had done that we'd, we'd, we'd done that thinking very 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 early on um, and put and put that issue to bed leadership more generally in the global game I suppose this is where we, we get to in this conversation your experience now into your I guess your fourth year uh, doing this job uh, a decade ago when James Sutherland was in the chair there was the big three Australia was effectively running the game with England and India that's clearly not the case anymore we're operating in a world where there is the big one I'm not saying that Australia doesn't have an influence but not perhaps the same kind of influences what would have been the case before I know diplomacy has been a big part of that with India but I suppose knowing when to flex some muscle as well there was the ICC carve up last year where 38.5% of revenues has been delivered back to India you know was there ever a consideration of flexing some muscle around that for instance as an example of where there was a pot of money that could have been distributed in a way that could have helped with issues that we've been talking a lot about at Sydney this week around the global game but instead have been returned to what is by degrees of magnitude the richest richest cricket board. Mm. Well, I mean, the first thing I think I'd say around that table, um, it's a, a really collegiate group. Um, everyone is super, super passionate. I think the thing that everyone is craving is kind of a level of stability across the representatives that get sent. I think that, uh, yeah, hopefully, um, no, I also would say that, you know, James Sutherland and 
uh, his the respect that he commands uh, and you know, the respect that I think he earned around that table you know, in terms of being a driving force around the World Test Championship, the World's the, the Cricket World Cup Super League, uh, many of the innovations at the ICC level have. And you know, got Jeff Allardyce, who's Australian, kind of um, in in his position. Many of the innovations came out of cricket Australia, Australian cricket's leadership. So my experience over the last three and a half years is that people have been turning to us to say, Australia, what do you think? Uh, they're wanting to us to, you know, to have strong views, uh, take a leadership position. I get, I get countless requests from um, colleagues around. Uh, from other members asking if we can kind of share our policies, our procedures, uh, you know, share share IP, help help them out. You know, I think um, as an example, there's a, a few countries now looking to build high performance centres. So you know, we share all our. Oh, we've got incredible facilities around Australia, um, not only at the NCC, but now you've got Cricket Central, you've got Junction Oval, you've got the Wacker Ground redevelopment. So yeah, we really, as an Australian cricket, try to support at many, many levels around that uh, around that table. You know, so there is just a, you know, when people come here, they see things being done, you know, done really, really well. I think I think James deserves an enormous credit credit for that uh, I think the um, the funding arrangements is the good news is that everyone's going up um, because uh, more people are watching and um, the ICC is able to on the back of that um, and again Richard Frudenstein deserves a lot of credit for this because he was our representative on the media rights group uh, with the ICC yeah, there is more money coming into the game um, than ever before. So, you know, I think whilst our share is around about the same as the previous cycle, uh, that's a significant uh, overall increase. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just a really, it is a, is a fine balance. You cannot get away from the fact that when you look at the, the deals that have been done, you look at the metrics, that a significant majority of the revenue is earned out of India for ICC events. Um, and um, so, you know, I think. Uh, certainly, we we've got a, a strong view on structures of tournaments, uh, on you know, on ways, additional ways of commercialisation. It's something that we're working on, and it's great to have Finn Bradshaw in at the ICC. is is a global cricket game. Uh, would be computer game. Would be a fantastic way to raise. Um, engage the next generation and also raise raise funds. So, yeah. But as as it, as it relates to the if you like the carve up that 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 needs to be a, coll- a collective a collective discussion and i think you know the, the question is is actually how do we how do we um with everyone going up how do individual countries invest those funds and uh secondary if there is some surplus left over how do we strategically invest those into 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 the main priorities of which you know over the last few weeks it's very very clear that making sure that test cricket remains strong in markets outside of those countries where it's absolutely thriving is a key priority. It's interesting that that message from you and from the chair Mike Baird was much stronger and more explicit over the last week or so saying that even with revenues going up you need and the wealthier countries need to do more to support test cricket and and try to keep that going. That felt like that was a more explicit sort of offering an actual solution rather than I mean there have been years of people saying oh we should do something something should be done it but it's been vague that was more specific was that was that sort of something coming to a head over a longer period was it was it partly a response to the context of South Africa sending a fifth team to New Zealand, um, it, it was it was a notable shift in tone in terms of being more specific and more explicit from both of you. I think we've just seen how much everyone loves it. I think we've seen the potential. I think we've seen the potential of Test cricket. 
uh, over the last three or four weeks and how much everyone loves it and so it's worth it is really worth protecting uh, I've got a, a personal view that you know there's resourcing and funding but that's only one element of the equation and arguably the more important element of the equation is scheduling you know so I think that is the work uh, that I'll be prioritizing and that we'll be doubling down on with the ICC is scheduling because you can put as much money in air market for test cricket as possible but if you if there are scheduling clashes with uh, other areas that are a major revenue generating source for a particular member uh, then it's going to cause problems we are very fortunate here uh, test cricket remains the format that is the highest revenue generator yeah, um, it's most of your broadcast deal, right? It's it and abso- absolutely. And so, you know, throughout the life of the Big Bash, we're in our thirteenth year. We've always scheduled them head to head. Now, uh, what we've um, sought to do through this next uh, cycle is um, that we've um, looking to schedule white ball international cricket in in November, um, and then the New Year's Test be the last international cricket on home soil, so that our Test players can come back in and, and play some big bash cricket so uh, yeah we're we're trying to we're we're trying to achieve achieve both and that that for me is an example of smart scheduling uh, i think that the whole system now needs to come together and and this will be priority at the discussions coming up in um, the next set of meetings in march is that we need to solve the scheduling i think a lot of people are just going straight to the funding but um, the scheduling is the bigger higher order priority it's a really fair point like because we know that the jenga blocks we're scheduling it's a complete nightmare for all of you who are charged with that responsibility what's that old quote about there's some decades where nothing happens and sometimes a whole decade happens in one year it feels like each of the last couple of years has been the latter where there is so much change with domestic t20 comps and uh, and where they're being resourced and how that's influencing scheduling uh, in a way that makes it even more nightmarish than it was to begin with and it was already a pretty high bar to clear yeah. in the first you instance. You say Jenga, I always use Sudoku killer, but it's one of probably killer killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, yeah, choose your own analogy. They're yeah, all bang yeah. on. I mean, that it is so difficult to do this uh, moving one without um, hurting the other. Um, but it does feel like, and Jeff's question went to this before with you and Mike, that you're willing to step up here, it feels like anyway, your, your rhetoric is you are willing to step up. Is there, and similarly with the ECB administrators, with the, the Richards have said similar things in the last 12 months or so, do you feel like that a lot of eyes are on you right now as running the, the, running the Australian side of the game, that the people are looking to leadership and going, right, if we're going to have a, a test championship or if we're going to have test cricket around the world that vaguely resembles what we've got in 10 years' time, there's going to have to be intervention now when these decades are happening in a year? Uh, very definitely, yes. That's our role. And, you know, I look around the CEC table and uh, you know, it's reflect on kind of when I, when I went to my first meeting, which was you know, inevitably a Zoom to now. Um, and you do feel like one of the ones that has been around the longest and the people are actually actively going to seeking out their opinion and, and looking for leadership. So, yeah, I think we've got the mandate. I think we've got the opportunity. I think we've got the, got the responsibility, absolutely. We were, at a, we were all at the same dinner, the Darshak Meta's dinner last 
whatever night it was, I never know what day of the week it is in, in early January. And Harsha Bogle was the guest speaker and raised an interesting idea about a rebate system where if nations put on a test match, that they can be subsequently rebated for putting it on to help with the burden so that the money doesn't get put into general revenue and the risk of it being spent outside of test cricket, but we can kind of hypothecate money in a far more direct way to make it more viable to have test cricket running in a healthy way around the world. Seemed pretty sensible to me. What, what was your first impression of that? Yeah, it was... Um, I thought it was kind of an interesting idea and challenge, but I, again, I go back to, I think, the higher order issue is getting the scheduling sorted. Uh, it's brilliant to see that the players all want to play test cricket. I think, if anything, this IPL auction has been really, really informative and something that I think we'll talk about. The reality is the highest paid players in the IPL, um, and we've got two great examples, one of whom set out for the last three, Mitchell Stark, is you make your name in test cricket and that's where you become really super marketable. So, yeah, again, I... I think first first order priority. Let's get the scheduling sorted, uh, and then we'll and then we'll go from there. Last one on scheduling. Uh, last week on radio, you were very supportive of minimum three test series. Pretty hard to pull that off with the scheduling problem we're discussing here. One idea that was doing the rounds about four or five years ago, which my instinct is to rebel against, by the way, four-day test cricket, but extended four-day test matches where you can have 98 overs in a day. We've seen that around the world. How about making all World Test Championship series a minimum of three matches and you have the provision, if you want, to make them four days in duration to make the, the burden of putting them on just a little bit less and you get a, a you don't end up with that frustrating that ridiculous frustrating situation where you get through two test matches and everyone's like come on seriously we're going to pull the pin here like India and South Africa the well, best especially if one are. of the tests goes for a day and a half quite yeah, yeah yeah but you know the idea of using being a bit clever with four day test cricket in countries where it might be more useful what do you what do you think of that yeah look, I think you want to you don't want to mess with test cricket. You want to mess with it as little as you possibly can. For me, I think sometimes you need a bit of a burning platform to kind of really kind of drive these conversations. I think the India-South Africa series is an absolute classic. There's a, probably a level of altruism in, I think, in, in my comments, but I, I'm a great believer. You need to kind of think where you're shooting for and then see what you can solve. And ultimately, scheduling, as well as being killer, killer, Sudoku, Jenga, it's also a series of compromises. Um, and what's the, you know, if you like, the least worst set of co compromises. So I threw that out there, really. I think I'm, it's what our players believe. It's what our coaching staff believe. I think it's what the fans want to see. Can you click your fingers and make it happen? It's, it's way, way, way more complicated than that. But it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. And then we'll, you know, I think, as I said, it does need it needs everyone to come together to to, to work through. My set is this this FTP yeah, is 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 relatively kind of relatively firmly set. It's obviously been published, but I think we've got to take a we've got to take a really long term view. The other specific suggestion you made was that some of the women's test series could go to three. How realistic do you think that is? Is that something we could see in an Ashes series in a couple of years' time, or is that likely to be further down the road? And, and is it, it was that like this would be a nice thing to have sort of thought bubble, or was it this is something that you actually want to specifically push towards? Yeah, look, I think the my the starting point, and you kind of we go back to that moment at the MCG with eighty six thousand. You want to if you kind of starting high level, you want to you want the a game for women and girls to be yeah, as commercially successful, as popular driving, as close as you possibly can. I think 
T20 cricket is T20 is very, very much the growth vehicle. That's where we should prioritise our efforts. The first priority for me with tests is getting as many countries to play as competitive multi-format series as possible. I don't think that three tests is is imminent. It's something that potentially is a you know major anniversary of um, of Test cricket. Something you could do as a as a as a one-off to get things started. But the the real the real priority, I believe, is getting as many countries mm. as possible to be competitive in multi-format series. 2034 would be the 100th anniversary of women's mm. test cricket. So. You heard it here first. There you go. Peggy Antonio and all the rest. Yeah. Uh, Nick Hockley, your job is a bloody difficult one. Uh, we, we, we're acutely aware of that. Um, and for all the criticism that comes your way, we, we know that you and your executive team work very hard and, and coming out and spending time with us today, telling our audience a bit more about yourself as well, uh, has been most appreciated on a rainy day here at Sydney. Uh, let's try and do it again maybe this time next year if that works for you. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on and joining us on The Final Web. Brilliant. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's, di- it's, it's difficult, but it's actually a privilege and it's, um, yeah, I feel very, very privileged to be, be doing it. And yeah, the, it's, it's actually all, it's all about uh, working together and you know, days like we've seen at, uh, at the SCJ over the last week. But I really, really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. You know what I meant here. I had to get-